It's always so heartwarming when your work resonates with people, and I'm so excited to welcome another patron to our Patreon family. Thank you so much, Elvie, for becoming a regular subscriber. If you are also interested in joining the Patreon family to support this podcast and to support me in producing this podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash bwtpod, and we'd love to welcome you. Hey, girl, let's get together, okay? (laughs) So you might know that I've been planning a conference, and it was supposed to happen October this year. You know, the world fell apart, but we're trying to put that whole back together, right? So the International Black Women Travel Jubilee presents Rally and Rejoice. So this is the premium event for black women travel content creators and digital nomads. And of course, all those who are aspiring. And I'm trying to create something that is easy for you to follow, easy for you to digest and more accessible for you to actually use and implement in your life. And so instead of making it like a six, seven day, eight hour day conference kind of thing. I'm trying to split it up. So it'll be Sundays, October 4th, 11th, and 18th. October 4th is called The Sojourn. October 11th is called The Voyage. And then October 18th is The Odyssey. Like I said, I just want you to be able to get this information down into you and be able to use it in your journey, wherever you are in your journey. It's designed to help you get your mindset together, as well as practical tools that you'll need along the way. So I'm really excited to welcome you there. Tickets are currently on sale. And I made this affordable, y'all, because access is really important to me. Community is really important to me. I don't know if if you get those vibes yet. What you can do is just head straight over to ibwtj.ashalbh.com. And you'll find more information there on each day and what the speakers will be presenting. I'm really, really excited to share this information with y'all. So you can get more information and cop your early bird tickets at ibwtj.ashalbh.com. I love who I am. And I was tired of trying to dim my shine to make other people more comfortable around me. Because the fact of the matter was, it wasn't working even when I had been trying to tone it down. It just, it was never going to be enough. From somewhere around the world, welcome to the Black Women Travel Podcast. Hi, my name is Wanda Duncan, and I'm so glad you're joining me as we explore the paths of Black women who've made travel a large part of their lives. Welcome to the show. Hey loves, it's Wanda, the host of the Black Women Travel Podcast. I'd like to invite you to become a patron of the Black Women Travel Podcast. There are a few budget-friendly tiers you can choose from so that as a community, we can continue to heal, ask for what we deserve, get it, and inspire the next generation. Tap the link in the show notes and choose a monthly contribution that suits you. I'm so excited about the episodes you'll hear that will nudge you to love yourself deeper and take more action in your life from that empowered place. 
please consider becoming a monthly subscriber through patreon.com slash bwtpod. Get ready to hear another great episode. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can you please tell us your name, where you're from, your current location, and the name of your business? Sure. My name is Karen Ricks, and I am originally from San Diego, California, in the United States of America. I am currently located in Tirana, the capital city of Albania in Eastern Europe, and I am the head chef of our kitchen classroom. So head chef... I have all the things to talk about. I'm so excited. Um, (laughs) Can you tell me about baby Karen? First of all, I've never met a small Karen. So (laughs) that's adorable, just thinking about that. But also, you are just like the most bubbly, like filled with personality, overflowing with personality. Like you are... (laughs) just so alive. Um, What was baby Karen like? Was baby Karen like that as well? Or is this something like you grew into? I have always been a very outgoing individual. Um, I took to the stage performing as a small child. And so I feel like the stage has only gotten larger and more welcoming as I have continued to grow into myself and awareness of not just who I am, but who I really want to be, who I enjoy being. And world travel has definitely helped to deepen that sense of personal awareness and clarity. And it's just a joyous thing. It just can't be contained. And I'm tired of trying. (laughs) Okay. Why? Why do we have to dull ourselves down? That is always the question. Exactly. But that you say that, that you were trying to contain it, that's very interesting to me because as Black women, a lot of times we're not allowed to be that. No. Like you could be sassy. So like (laughs) funny with a little mean streak. No, that wasn't allowed. So Not in my streak is very like that's popular in in media today. Oh sure. Oh yes. But like just and to be a glorious, curious, audacious little baby Karen. Like I I don't <laughs> see that happening. So what was it like for you growing up being yourself? I think growing up. I mean, well, I can look back now and say that I was exploring being myself, but it was in fits and spurts, in smaller, more narrow categories of who I thought I might like to experiment with being for a little while. And I feel like now, as a free adult, I am really only just beginning to scratch the surface of what it means to embrace being fully and most boldly and audaciously myself. But as a child, it was like, okay, we can go to this dance class and you can move your body and your feet and wave your arms and spin around and go nuts and then bring it back in because we're not in dance class anymore. Or you can go and sing and you know, 
use all of that power and all of that lung capacity and be as loud as you want to be and then rein it back in because, you know, we're not in singing class anymore or whatever the case may be, but always a little bit here and a little bit there, but that's okay for this time in this place. And that's okay for this time in this place. And there was never really any one place that was okay for all of that for an extended period of time. So I think that's a part of why I embrace being most fully myself in all aspects of what I enjoy doing in my life and in my work now, because, oh, it's, it's felt like decades of containment of being told, you know, that I was too much, too loud, too big, too bold, whatever, too much, whatever for this particular space or this particular time or this particular audience. And it's really exciting to just let loose and be myself and to watch people who are attracted to that, who see something of themselves or who they want to be in that too, coming and flocking to me to learn how they can embrace that part of themselves too. Do you remember like getting any specific messaging from your parents? So I understand the you're expressing yourself is only appropriate in these times and places. But in terms of like who you were as a person, did you ever get affirmed by them? Oh, I was absolutely affirmed by my parents. They were both wonderfully encouraging and supporting of all of the different things that I wanted to do. Uh, there were often questions of, you know, whether or not, what I wanted to do or who I wanted to be was really who I wanted to be. Like, you know, don't you want to do more than that? Or wouldn't you like to do this and something else? And I will forever be thankful to my mother who raised me as a single parent for many years, along with my uh, other siblings with the bold and with the audacity to actually dream that we could do more than might have seemed possible at the time. I look back on my childhood and my mother was absolutely the biggest influence in raising me to be the Renaissance woman that I am today. And I wonder at how, as a single parent, she created the resources the time, the money, the energy to be able to shuttle me and my siblings to this or that extracurricular activity to explore all these different facets of our creativity. And I am forever thankful for that. But, you know, my parents were also black professionals raising black children in the United States of America. And as the world has seen, that all blowing up in the last month or so, especially, that's not always a safe space to be. And so as encouraging and supportive as my parents always were, they also tempered that encouragement with what they felt were the necessary and life-saving precautions to remind me that not everyone would see in me the same potential that they saw in me. So are you very different personality wise from your siblings then? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that interesting how people can come out of the same household? 
and be so very different. We, we are all absolutely related and uh, we love each other very much, but we are all very, very different people. Uh, especially very different as parents. Just one of the things that we like to laugh and, and marvel at when we speak with one another. Uh, I love my siblings dearly, and I sometimes do wonder how they developed into the individuals that they are, uh, having come from the same household. But, you know, we all are individuals, and we all take in even the same stimuli, the same information, the same experiences, and process them in different ways. And so I absolutely love and adore my siblings, and I marvel and I celebrate them for the amazing human beings and parents and contributors to their communities that they are. And I'm thankful that we're so different because that's part of what makes our family so special. (laughs) Usually what happens is people who have this appetite for life, so to speak, a lot of times they have seen the other side of it. And that is why they are usually so impassioned to continue living. Um, Or that's why sometimes they battle with depression, like so many people we know. um, Well, we don't know personally, maybe, but who can see the darker side because they can see the light as well. What has helped you to do you, first of all, do you, do you identify with that narrative? Absolutely. I feel like I am a hundred thousand, ten thousand times more appreciative of the joy that I can experience in my life today, in part because of the tragedies that I have experienced in, you know, earlier parts of my life. What are some of those things that left an impression on you? Well, I think the earliest and one of the most defining was my parents' divorce when I was a child. I was six years old. It was messy. And it was really too young an age to come to the realization that the people that you love most in your life, the people who are you know, there to love and care and provide for you, maybe are not going to be there to do that. And so that was a really powerfully defining moment for me in my young childhood and in my relationships, even to this day. Did seeing that breakup impact how you formed relationships later, not just like romantic, but relationships period? Oh, absolutely. I know that there was a period of many years afterward where I was just not very trusting of a lot of the individuals that came into my life, not just adults, but even other children as well, simply because of the fact that I wasn't sure that I could trust that they would still be there the next day, week, month. Um, But as I said, from that tragedy even, I am excited to celebrate the triumphs that have come from that as well. And here we are in the middle of 2020, which has been kind of the most incredibly disruptive year of 
<laughs> everyone's lives. And I am excited to celebrate my 20th wedding anniversary with my husband. And so it's, it's really, oh gosh, <laughs> it brings tears to my eyes. And I know it did for my parents as well, who have happily celebrated every year that my husband and I have been together as well, because they know just how difficult it can be to maintain a loving relationship for as long as we have. And it, it means that much more knowing that I have the support of other people who have been rooting for us since the beginning. So what, what helped you? That was such a young age to experience that type of loss and mistrust um, and far too young for you to be able to process in order to make it meaningful for you, I think. Uh, so what, what helped you or when did you get the help that you needed in order to put that in a context that you could understand and grow from, learn from? Well, the first thing that was helpful was getting therapy. And I am thankful to my mother for recognizing that I was in a place where I needed more help than she could provide. Um, so I had the assistance of other professionals outside of my family, outside of even my family's sphere of experience or expertise in order to guide me through what it meant to process the dissolution of, you know, this really important relationship in my life, this thing that I felt responsible for as the oldest child. Um, and I also developed really amazing relationships with the people in my church at that time as well. And it was a huge leap in my personal faith to recognize that there was a higher power, even more powerful than, you know, the people who had the most power in my life at that time, my parents, uh, looking out for me and loving me. And so my relationship with the Lord grew even stronger at that time as well. And it is that sustaining relationship and my continued faith that has helped to carry me through all of the challenges in my life. How, how old were you when you uh, started going to therapy? Uh, it was just after my parents' divorce. So that would have been when I was six years old. Really? Yes. That is amazing. Yes, it is. Wow. I know my mother was a pioneer in so many ways. I, I had no appreciation for just the incredible lengths that she went through to provide for me at such a young age. And now as a parent myself, I have an even greater appreciation for the amazing things that she was able to do to provide for me at the, at a time when that was just completely unheard of. So you, you never requested it yourself. She was just like, hey, baby girl, I can see you're going through something. We're going to go see somebody. Oh, I fought it. <laughs> I didn't want it. 
which is wow. why I'm that much more appreciative that she was lovingly insistent. Well, I mean, you're a kid. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you barely, Absolutely. you know, you just learned the name, name of your crayon, the colors of your crayons. Like, yeah, there was no way that I had the words yeah. to understand or fully process all that I was going through at that time. That's why, like I said, looking back on it now, I have just the utmost gratitude and appreciation for the revolutionary steps that my mother took to provide for my needs at a time when I said that was just completely unheard of, especially for a black woman. That's so magnificent. That just like warms every part (laughs) of my being. That's She's so a pretty wonderful. magnificent lady. Yeah. Just to be able to to see the impact. You know, a lot of times mothers are busy. <laughs> First of all, you oh, weren't the only child. You you give no. me only child vibes, though. So that's really interesting. <laughs> but you weren't the only child. But And she's a newly single parent and, like, you know, the breakup that mm-hmm. she experienced. And she's like, right. Karen's not okay. Karen needs help. What am I going to do? And to like do that for you. That's so amazing. Oh, I love it. <laughs> um, all right. So we let's let's age you a little bit. Let's get out of year six. Um, so you're in therapy, you have a closer relationship with your maker and your congregation. Um, you're going through school, you're getting all this education. Um, and you have a conversation with your parents about what you want to do with your life. You want to spend time in the kitchen, but your parents are like, you're far too smart to be doing something like that. So they discourage you um, a couple of times from doing that type of work, but you eventually found your way to it. <laughs> As we see today. Was I always found my way back to the kitchen. Yeah. And I should point out that, I wasn't discouraged from cooking, uh, but like a lot of things that I might have expressed a desire to do professionally as a career in the future, I was discouraged from considering that as a viable option because there was never any question as I was growing up that I was going to do well in school, I was going to pursue higher education and a professional calling worthy of all of the work that my parents had already gone through themselves to get their degrees, uh, to complete their education, to make their way in the world. So cooking was just, yeah, that's something that you can do. You have to do it. You know, people need to eat. But uh, as a career option, yeah, no, that wasn't up for consideration. So you meet the man, (laughs) Mr. Chef de Partey. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Yes. Okay. Monsieur Chef, you meet him. So that's in America. He is American. Yes. So you don't really talk about him. So. <laughs> no, my husband's a little more shy, more reserved. He's not the outgoing social butterfly that I am. It's one of the many ways in which we complement one another. No, but I said you don't talk about him. <laughs> <laughs> So how did you two meet? Uh, We met in school, actually, um, in the gospel choir. 
no less. He can sing? He likes to make a joyful noise. Oh! (laughs) (laughs) He will fully agree with me. He loves to sing. He enjoys singing, but he wouldn't call himself a singer. It was an opportunity to do something different and more interesting with his time, uh, for which I will be eternally grateful because otherwise we would not have met. So he was holding up the the tenors or the <laughs> altos and you was over there contra alto, soprano, I don't know. And uh, you looked up from your song verses, from your hymns and uh, made eye contact and said, hey, why don't we go for a vanilla Coke? <laughs> no, I don't know. Actually, you want to hear a funny story because I was would love to than that. <laughs> uh, he was a couple years behind me in school, and so I wasn't, you know, paying attention. But one day after choir rehearsal, I got really excited about my new hobby, and I wanted to share with other folks. And I was like, "All right, everybody, who wants to come with me to go ice skating?" And he jumped up to me. He's like, yes, yes, I want to go. And I'm like, okay, come on, somebody else. Who else? Somebody save me. (laughs) Um, So we ended up getting a small group together to go ice skating. And he was not at all steady on his feet. Really had no desire to go ice skating. Just wanted to hang out. Mm. And that opportunity to kind of uh, fall all over me. <laughs> and I propped him up. I was encouraging him, supporting. I, I love teaching people how to do things that they don't think they can do. And uh, we had a lot of fun. But I still <laughs> all the way there. <laughs> it took uh, quite a few more group gatherings and things before we actually started dating come on chaperone dating (laughs) but what was the clincher like what put you over you're like oh who's this kid like all right whatever he's totally just me but so incredibly (laughs) sweet no matter what i said or what i did hung on my every word and the love in his eyes was apparent far before I was ever conscious enough to look and actually see that that's what it was that was staring back at me. He knew. He knew way before I ever even thought to consider it. And he was persistent. <laughs> Ooh, Karen. I hear you getting the butterflies over there, girl. <laughs> so he is not black nope he is white as can be (laughs) what has that been like Uh, between the two of us absolutely hilarious for so many years because we have looked at the reactions of other people observing us in our relationship and just kind of blown it off you know um 
we love each other and we know it. And the fact that we have spent more than half our marriage living outside the United States has made the responses or the reactions of other people to uh, our relationship even more amusing because there are so many people that we encounter who would never in a million years expect that we would be a couple. And so fortunately, I think there's a lot more uh, surprise or just innocent curiosity rather than actual animosity toward us outside the United States. It's been really fun and refreshing for us. And then even more so as we take in the looks of people who are doing the genetic math as the three of us as a family walk down the street. Our son, who is shades lighter than I am, but shades darker than my husband with his springy Shirley Temple mane of curls. Uh, people look at him and take in his adoring face with big smiles and then look at me with confusion and look at my husband with confusion and then the two of us together and they're like, oh, and it's hilarious. It's absolutely hilarious when we're walking down the street to see that light bulb go off in people's eyes and they're like, oh, that's how that happened. <laughs> uh, it just, it makes us laugh all the time. And so that's, that's, from, that's the outside looking in. I'm curious about the inside <laughs> out. So like, was he aware of what it was to experience life as a black person in, in the States or out of the States? Like, how woke was Brother Chef Departay? <laughs> <laughs> Did you have to explain your bonnet to him? Like, you know, these are things black girls. Oh, no. <clears throat> well, <laughs> we, we went through lots of hair discussions over the years, especially uh, the early years of our marriage when I was still fighting with my natural curls and relaxing and the whole transition to me going natural. He, he knows way more about hair than I'm sure he ever thought he would need to. <laughs> but uh, although my husband and I both uh, initially grew up in Southern California, uh, he and his family moved to South Carolina at a young age. And so he has been very deeply entrenched in the South, even for more years than I did in the United States. And so he was already woke. And we both went into our relationship with our eyes wide open, fully acknowledging the challenges that we knew we were going to face from without. And so we knew we had to be very confident in our relationship with one another. That's really special. I like that. Some some Black women may be wondering, like, how do you know it's not fetishism, fetish-sized? People are welcome to wonder. Uh, I've had ac people actually make those comments too. No, 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 oh, not okay. that, not the outside, not the outside looking in, the inside looking out. So you said like he like hung on your every word, and you could see the love in his eyes, and you said he knew before <laughs> you knew. Um, but it's like, were you like, hey, do you only date black girls? Like, what's your angle, son? Or was there just a vibe that you had about him? Like, oh, he's not a creep. Like, he's not dating me just because I'm black. We had a lot of 
lengthy, deep, meaningful conversations about who we were as individuals and what we wanted out of a relationship, what we were looking for in a future partner in life, and all of the discussions that we had, all of this soul searching that we did both individually and together made it clear that he was really in it for me and for us. Who has that? <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. But like, who has such clarity at such a young age? <laughs> yeah. We, as individuals, mm-hmm. we had experienced our own personal traumas and come through on the other side with a lot of personal clarity. And yeah, those are rather unique characteristics to find in teenagers. <laughs> uh, but that was who we were. And maybe that was a part of what we recognized in each other, even way back then. So he traveled the world with you because I'm, it seems like you were leading <laughs> when it came to that initiative. Um, Actually, I was not. You weren't. So the the Japan and the Montessori school that you started back in 2011, like you all decided to move there together and you just started that there, but that wasn't like, like, tell us about that. Okay. Well, I should back up to say that travel was something that started as a part of our relationship. Um, We met in New York and got married. And instead of having a big wedding or whatever, we eloped. We went off on a cruise around Western Europe for a couple weeks. We said, see you later to everybody. And we started our married lives together traveling. And I like to look back on that now as uh, a beautiful foreshadowing of things to come. But it was a lot of travel. We saw like, I don't know, 10 different port stops in two weeks or something. It was such a crazy blur by the end. And then we drove cross country from New York to Oregon together. And we traveled around the United States for several years before moving to Japan. But my husband was really the one who initiated that move to Japan. When he first brought it up, I thought he was crazy. We didn't know anybody in Japan. We didn't speak, read, write, understand Japanese. And we didn't know anybody who had done what we were contemplating doing. So I thought he was crazy. And I told him so. Uh, And in fact, we had the very first conversation about picking up and moving to Japan three or four years before it actually happened. So it took me quite a while to come around to the idea. But once we were there, what was really just, it was just going to be a year of, you know, this exploring Japan thing. And then we were going to go back to our quote unquote normal lives in the United States. But once we were there, oh my goodness, we fell in love with it. And that plan for one year turned into two years, turned into 10 years. And the development of the International Montessori School, that came with time. Uh, Our son was born there in Japan. And our continued travels moving on from Japan, that 
was my idea. I got this opportunity to go to cooking school in Italy and we talked and worked it out together as a family and we decided to sell it all and pick it up and move. Then from Italy, we picked up and we moved again to London and from there to Mexico. And the more we moved, the more we began to explore, the more we realized we were in this unique and blessed position to continue to do this indefinitely, if that was what we chose. And it's been exciting. And the longer we do this, the more it really is a family-oriented process of exploring our passions and our curiosity. Who is it we want to be? What is it we want to know more about? Where do we want to go? And that's really how we ended up here in Albania, spinning the globe and saying, hey, we're curious about this place. (laughs) We've never been there before. We've heard good things. Let's go check it out. And you've been developing our kitchen classroom and it's where you're, uh, I don't, I don't know the correct phrase for it, but feeding our minds, nourishing our souls is like, I guess the byline feeding our minds, nourishing our souls. Um, And where you encourage the people to play with their food, you want them to have fun. So you went to cooking school and then told everybody to throw the rules out (laughs) and just do what you want to (laughs) do. Um, how has it been growing this online community? Well, you you did do cooking in Japan as well, correct? Absolutely. In fact, our kitchen classroom really grew out of the culinary lessons that I was doing with my students uh, in Japan, even before I started the school. I had been working with a Japanese friend and co-teacher doing these mommy and me style classes in a variety of community centers around town in our Japanese community. And we had a lot of fun teaching the mothers and the children in English, but very, a very different style than the English language classes that are so popular. And the mother's told me that they were most drawn to the lessons that I designed because they were just doing the normal things that they would do in their lives, like cooking. You know, we would have whole month-long themes of exploring fruits or vegetables, and, and then we would make a salad. And these mothers who insisted to me that their young children, you know, one and two years old, would never eat, you know, insert vegetable here, were just staring in me at me with their mouths agape as their children made and consumed this massive salad with vegetables that the mothers swore their kids hated. So we were living our lives really and incorporating these things that we could learn from. And food is not just a necessity, but it's a great medium for learning because of the incredible multi-sensory experience. So I taught like this for years and we incorporated whole big international dinners with the school in Japan and we were always playing with our food. And so that stint in Italy was really an opportunity for 
me to step outside the four walls of the brick and mortar school that I had developed, but to stay connected with so many of the parents who had already been on this journey with me and recognize that I could continue to teach the same sorts of things that I had been doing at the school uh, in this virtual space online. And so that's really how our kitchen classroom was born. And I continue to uh, take some guidance from the rules that I've learned in cooking (laughs) since I was a young child. And then, yeah, toss the rule book out and encourage my students to get their hands messy and have fun and literally as well as figuratively play with their food. So it seems like singing gospel singing is equally a passion if like you can quantify these types of things. And that's something that you did in Japan as well that you carried over from the States. Um, Do you still, I know you used to like do live performances and like uh, special occasions and things like that. It says you sang for two presidents on your website. Yes. Ah. Um, So how did food kind of edge out in front of the music? Where are the albums? (laughs) Like, (laughs) What's your relationship with your music now? Well, like a lot of gospel singers, the music started in church. And the interesting thing about singing gospel music in Japan was, you know, just like the school and our extended lives there for a decade, it was completely unplanned. I had a friend who invited me to church. And after a particularly moving service, she introduced me to the pastor who just was curious to know more about me. And my friend was nudging saying, oh, yes, she sings. She sings, too. And the pastor asked if I would mind singing something. And when she heard me, she said, oh, you have to do this again. We need to, you know, organize something more. And I was like, well, sure, I'd be happy to sing, like, you know, for a church service or something. And she had something much bigger in mind. It began as a small uh, charity event at our church, and it grew into a, an annual uh, gospel charity concert that very quickly outgrew our small church and ended up being a massive production in uh, local uh, auditoriums and things around our community. But there was always a bigger purpose behind it. Uh, Just like, you know, my relationship with God has continued to grow over the years. I felt like his purpose for that singing was just like the cooking that I do really is educational. So while I was in Japan and while we were doing this charity gospel event series, um, I continued to welcome the community into, you know, what they thought was just going to be a concert, but was really an opportunity to let them know a little bit more about who I was as an individual, how the music relates to the faith, the origins of gospel music and its history in slavery and as uh, messages of encouragement and even coded messages for escape of enslaved black people in the United States and in other places. And I did this whole series uh, about the history of gospel music and 
its place in American culture back when, you know, there were, I was surrounded by Japanese people who just thought of it as another genre like rock or R&B. So just like everything I do, I guess I'm just a teacher at heart. And so it's never just been about the music, but always as a means of expanding upon the relationships in my life. You made a post on Medium 2018, and it says, I am too much. And it reads, apparently I am just too much for some people. I talk too fast, I laugh too loudly, I smile too quickly, I giggle too often. I'm just too ridiculously happy. My teeth are too big, my nose is too wide, my breasts are too large, my curls are too wild, my body is too round, my hips sway too much, I take up too much space, I gush too much about cooking, I make too many sweets, I fawn over fresh produce way too much, I eat too much, I drink too much, I have too much chocolate, I'm just too enthusiastic about food. Um, and it goes on from there. Um, you were fed up. <laughs> Karen, Karen said, look, I know I'm not everybody's dish, but baby, I'm somebody's dish. Absolutely. Um, that particular piece of writing came out of a time of frustration when I realized that the people who had a lot of negative things to say about who I was or how I wasn't uh, what they thought I should be was starting to take over my thinking in a really unnecessary way. And so I just decided to repeat it all. And the more I said it, the more I put them all together, the more I just started to laugh because I realized that <laughs> this was exactly who I was and that if that was too much for some people, then they were welcome to just move on because I love who I am. And I was tired of trying to dim my shine to make other people more comfortable around me. Because the fact of the matter was, it wasn't working even when I had been trying to tone it down. It just, it was never going to be enough. And so I realized I could release myself from the burden of trying to make other people comfortable with me and I could be comfortable with me. And the more comfortable I am in my skin, <laughs> the, the more incredible things I can contribute to myself, to my family, to my community, to my clients. I, I realized then that the people that I should be listening to, if anything, were the people who were paying me. And the people who were flocking to me were the ones who were excited by all that too muchness. So why not flaunt it? <laughs> Like, I literally cannot imagine, and I have a pretty good imagination, I could not imagine a smaller Karen in any way. <laughs> and I don't well, want to. It's funny that you mentioned that, because I really, I literally spent decades of my life trying to be physically 
smaller that growing up steeped in in diet culture like only now so many years later can i look back and see how much time and energy i wasted trying to literally as well as figuratively shrink myself down in order to be acceptable and it was all such a waste i made myself miserable doing things that i didn't like eating foods that I didn't like or avoiding foods that I did like thinking, Oh, well, you know, if I'm magically this size or if my weight were suddenly magically this number, then suddenly I'm going to be, you know, more acceptable. I'm going to be happier. The world is going to suddenly be a, a more welcoming place. And that's just a flat out lie. And so acknowledging that lie and embracing the fullness of who I am has been so incredibly liberating. It's like part of my life's work now to liberate more people from the shackles of diet culture, from the work of literally starving ourselves into nothingness because we cannot change the world when we're starving. <laughs> We cannot change the world when we're starving. Okay. Mm -mm. It doesn't happen. You know, like the comfort you get from a good meal. Oh, yes. And just imagine like not having that because you're trying to fit somebody's idea of, of what whatever is supposed to be, what a woman is supposed to be, whatever. I don't have to imagine it because I've been there. <laughs> and it's miserable. I saw a post from October 2019 where you said you ditched dieting and you're embracing intuitive eating. What does that mean to you? You know, as children, and I come back to children so much, they're such a joy. They, they have taught me so much more, I think, than I have ever taught them. And I've been teaching for almost 25 years now. But children know so much about who they are, and what they want. And if you watch a, a young child sit down, tables piled with food, you know, they love to dig in with their hands. They love to feel and smell and examine and even listen to and squish things in their fingers. And they eat and they eat with gusto and they enjoy the things that they love and they spit out the things that they don't like. <laughs> And when they have been satisfied, they get up and walk away. And as a child, there was a lot of that process for me that was interrupted. Um, there were times of food insecurity when we had food, but maybe not an abundance of food or definitely not the foods that I would choose to have eaten. And what we had was rationed. And when I wanted more, there wasn't necessarily more. And so we were also members of the clean plate club <laughs> and we didn't waste food. And I remember suffering through having to eat things I didn't like or being told uh, the opposite, that my hunger 
what I called hunger wasn't really that at all, that I didn't really know what I wanted and I needed to do something else. And so that disruption to that natural sense of knowing what I wanted and how to satisfy that uh, was a very, it was a traumatic, traumatic process. And this idea of intuitive eating as an adult is really coming back to that childlike understanding of my body, of my hunger, of the things that I crave, and that natural knowledge of myself to satisfy that hunger. And so I eat what I feel like eating when I feel like eating it without any of the arbitrary dietary rules that have oppressed me for too many years of my life. And sometimes that looks like chocolate cake for breakfast, or sometimes, you know, that looks like having dessert before dinner. And sometimes that looks like spending hours creating a feast for my family just because I can. And it's a blessing to be able to share that food freedom with the people that I love and with other people who are recognizing that they too have been oppressed, that they have had that natural intuition disrupted and they want to reconnect with themselves and learn to trust themselves and their bodies and their own cues for hunger and fullness again without anybody externally telling them, well, you can't do this or you should do that because it's, it's just not necessary. Is there anything in particular that like kicked that ideology off for you? Well, you know, it's interesting. I had been exploring this idea of moving in a way that just felt good for my body. And I later learned that joyful movement is one of the uh, guiding principles of health at every size, of body positivity. There's this whole massive movement of which I had previously been unaware. Uh, But for me, it really started with making a conscious decision to exercise in a way that I found joyful and not, um, you know, sending myself to the gym or jumping on a treadmill or something out of a sense of obligation. And when I stepped out of the path of obligation, I realized that I could still feel really good in my body. I could still do things that I enjoyed doing. And it was just I, I, I can't help but just take a deep and cleansing breath and exhale a sigh of relief because that's really what it was. It was this burden that I finally put down. And stepping away from that when it came to movement first opened the door to recognizing that there were other ways that I could find this freedom too. And I really started to connect most deeply with that in the cooking and the food preparation that I was doing with the young children 
in Japan. And again, it took many more years before I was actually able to put a name to it, to uh, be able to learn more about the principles of intuitive eating. But for me, it was about connecting with the childlike curiosity around food and around experimenting and just playing with it. And that's really why at the heart of what I do, I really and truly embrace playing with your food because it's reconnecting with the child in each and every one of us. So some of your favorite ways to move, you like dancing and you'll do hand or head stands and you challenge <laughs> your uh, sous chef to a yes. hand stand, head stand off. <laughs> um, and you're into skating. Yeah. Um, what are some other of your favorite ways to move? Oh, there are all sorts of joyful ways that we love to move. My little sous chef, he's not so little, actually. He is nine and a half now. Oh. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, we just had lots of fun playing at our local trampoline park here in Albania. That is one of our favorite places to play. And we go ice skating. We have taken tumbling and gymnastics classes here in circus acrobatics. <laughs> uh, my son and I were working with a coach here who is actually a member of the Albanian National Circus. That was so much fun. Uh, dancing and yeah, handstand and the headstand contests. That's something that we played with a lot during the lockdown for the last few months here in Albania. Uh, but we like to do lots of outdoor things too when we can. Uh, obstacle courses and hiking and swimming and skiing. Oh, that's something that we haven't done since uh, leaving Japan. But we were at the foot of the Japan Alps in Nagano Prefecture. And so my son grew up going skiing every winter. And he said recently that he's missed that particular winter activity. So we might need to find some snow again in the near future. <laughs> Even though it repulses you. <laughs> Being cold repulses me. But when you actually get skiing, it's okay. exercise. And I break a sweat and it feels good. Uh, and then it also feels good to get out and jump into the hot onsen, those natural hot spring baths. Whew, that, yeah, that's another amazing physical experience. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you a question about your sous chef. And feel free not to answer it. Does he know about the existence of Outcast? Yes or no? About the existence of Outcast? Yes, he does. Okay, just checking. Not that it's indicative of anything. I just wanted to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might be surprised to learn that it was his father who introduced him to Outcast. I, I wouldn't be surprised because you don't strike me <laughs> as an Outcast fan at all. I do not see you twerking, Karen. I'm sorry. I just don't. No, I don't. I knew you didn't. So <laughs> let me ask as well. Uh, so when you all moved to Japan, was that your first time out of the country? No, as I said, we had toured Europe oh. on our honeymoon. Yes, that's right. Okay, and sorry. I had also traveled a lot uh, back and forth to Mexico. Growing up in Southern California, we used to cross the border before you ever needed a passport or identification even to do that. So 
we had been outside of the United States together, but that was the first time living outside of U.S. borders. And we obviously loved it so much, we haven't really looked back. <laughs> um, so you were talking a little bit about growing up. Was travel something that your parents introduced to you or your mom introduced to you? Absolutely. And in fact, my parents cruised and uh, flew internationally quite a few times before I was born and told me stories about it growing up. So I always knew that I wanted to travel. In fact, I decided probably by the time I was about eight years old that I really wanted to go on a cruise. And so it was a huge part of that personal, that acceptance of my personal clarity that my husband was 100% on board with the honeymoon cruise because that was something I knew from a very young age I wanted to do. Honeymoon cruise, that's cute. <laughs> what are your hobbies? Oh, goodness. I love doing so many different things. Singing and dancing and skiing and skating and reading and yoga, swimming and hiking. I, I love doing just about everything. <laughs> and I'm the person who is always still on the lookout for other new things. Yes, it does seem like curiosity is like a part of your being. Like you're a very curious person. You also seem to read a lot as well. I love to read. I was the nerdy child who always had her nose buried in a book growing up. And the development of so many electronic methods of reading has only made that more accessible. Though I am definitely partial to holding paper and turning pages under my fingers any other kind of reading. So I am never without a book. And would you mind sharing your self-care practices, please? Oh, goodness. Self-care is something that continually changes and evolves depending on where we are in the world and what sorts of resources are available. I have been traveling with my yoga mat, though, for 25 years maybe now and so it's always nice to know that I have this practice of turning my thoughts inward and concentrating on my breath and my movement and I don't need a lot of external anything space time props uh, or other materials to be able to come back to who I am at my core. And then when it's available, you know, I mentioned the onsens or the hot spring baths, which are amazing in Japan. But bathtubs are not necessarily so common around Europe. So I'm blessed to be in a home with a bathtub right now. And uh, big overflowing tub with hot water and lavender scented bubbles is something that I absolutely adore. 
and it could also be something as simple as curling up with a book with my son or by myself or brewing a hot cup of tea or going for a walk and exploring a new place. I find that anything that helps me to reconnect to who I am and what's most important to me in my life is self-care. And it doesn't have to look any particular way. It doesn't have to cost a lot, or sometimes it can. <laughs> uh, but anything that helps me reconnect to who I am and who God wants me to be, that is self-care. Are any of those practices particularly grounding for you? Oh, I think the most literally and figuratively grounding sometimes is just walking barefoot on the ground, feeling grass or earth. Or I especially love to do that on beaches or natural uh, waters. The water is really life-giving for me. And maybe it's because I grew up in Southern California and I always feel at home on the beach, but I think, yeah, swimming, connecting to water and the earth is the most grounding for me personally. And when you are traveling, like how do you like to explore a new place? Well, I'm one of those weird digital nomads who likes to be disconnected. <laughs> so I don't have a cell phone. And I like to quite literally get lost. I'm partial to landing in a new city with uh, hopefully a few words or phrases in the local language under my belt. Uh, but I like to go for walks. I like to poke my nose around and uh, up one street or alley, as it were, in some situations and meet people and ask questions about things and just wander around. And I especially love chatting with people in uh, markets, supermarkets, grocery stores, outdoor markets, uh, you know, fish markets, whatever, um, because there's so much that's familiar, but also things that are unfamiliar and getting a chance to ask people questions about what they're purchasing or selecting or how they prepare it is just a part of my genuinely curious nature, but it's also a great way for me to start to get to know more about a place and its culinary traditions. And Karen, how do you like to celebrate? Oh, with every breath. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> um, you know, we talked from the very beginning about how tragedy can really kind of shape our lives. And in my travels, I feel so incredibly blessed that I choose to celebrate something every single day. It might be just saying grace over a meal, or it might be going out and uh, importing specialty ingredients from places that we haven't been in a while or that we long to go 
and creating some fantastic celebratory feast. Um, sometimes it's as simple as just calling my family together and having a big hug and tickle fest. <laughs> um, but there is always something to celebrate. And especially when I reflect on the people who are no longer here to celebrate with us, I kind of take it on as my own personal responsibility to celebrate for them and to celebrate the things that I know they would have been excited to participate in had they been here with us. And do you have any song lyrics or a poem that speaks to you these days? <laughs> a few years ago, I started this practice of identifying three key words to act as sort of guiding principles for my year. And my three words for 2020 are peace, love, and joy. And there are a few songs that immediately come to mind when I think of those uh, three words, like peace like a river and joy in my heart. Um, <laughs> most recently, it feels like smiling and laughing and experiencing joy in these chaotic times is really revolutionary in and of itself. And so the words that keep coming back to me are the lyrics of a song that has been running in the background for at least the last month in my head. And it says, this joy that I have, <laughs> the world didn't give it to me. The world didn't give it and the world can't take it away. And that applies to joy and peace and love. And I remember that daily. Please share with us your gorgeous voice. This joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. Oh, this joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. This joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. The world didn't give it. The world can't take it away. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> that was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. And I always like to have my guests share with listeners, how would you most like for your work to be supported? Food is a celebration, and I love seeing and sharing with people all the many different ways that we can play with our food. And so I think one of the best ways that your listeners who want to support me can do that is to join our play with your food community. We have an opportunity to interact on a daily basis, sharing the different inspirational ideas, sharing the educational insights 
that have come from our play and just to, you know, share some pictures and recipes and stories around the things that we're enjoying making and eating and of course playing with as we prepare a variety of different meals that are inspired from our global travels. So I would encourage listeners to come and to join our play with your food community. And that's also where they can find the launching pad to reach out and support financially with books and cooking lessons and extended workshops and even culinary and cultural tours for those intrepid travelers who want to join us in person. And is that on your website or is that the Facebook group? The Play With Your Food community is our free Facebook group and people can find links to some of our workshops and courses on our website at ourkitchenclassroom.com. Okay, so I will link those two places in the show notes. Thank you so much, Karen. I really appreciate you sharing your journey with us. Thank you, Wanda, for inviting me to share. It has been so much fun to be able to connect with you and so many other amazing women who have made travel a priority in their life and in their work. And I love that you celebrate the many different ways, the many different paths that that journey can take. So thank you for your work. My pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have yourself a beautiful, gorgeous, lovely, wonderful evening. It's still afternoon for me. Afternoon. Well, I will have a beautiful, wonderful, gorgeous evening. (laughs) Well, I live in the future. So by the way, great. So you're going to have a great afternoon. Yay. (laughs) Thank you. And we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Ah, um.